Canadian basketball coach turned Mississippi motel operator turned telecom mogul. Bernie Eppers had a reputation for keeping his finger on every penny and cutting uh, bottom lines to the quick, but he found out really quickly that that did not go in the telecom industry, and the telecom cowboy fell and took WorldCom and Wall Street with him. Today on Thought Crime, let's get into the WorldCom scandal. Keto Comic back for White Collar Crime Wednesday with the WorldCom scandal. This is one I actually remember happening when I was, uh, I remember WorldCom being a thing when I was, you know, a teenager and then in my early 20s when this all went down, or actually mid 20s, I remember when all this went down. So this is something that's still vivid in my memory. It is one in the top five accounting scandals ever in the United States, and it's a pretty interesting story. And I apologize for looking a little disheveled because I got up, I combed my hair, I did everything to try to look nice for y'all because, see, I do the bangs to hide the bald spot, right? Or the thinning spot. Those of you in your 40s, I'm sure you understand. But, uh, so I went down to hide the bald spot and then I hate the bangs in my eyes, so I end up going, and there's the bald spot. But anyway, I'm not fooling anybody. So there you go. But anyway, let's get into what happened at WorldCom. This was a stereotypical situation in which the books were absolutely cooked. I mean, they were cooked to a crisp. And I'm going to go over in detail how that happened and what the result was. But let's get into the history and background of WorldCom. All right, y'all. Here to your, your right, my left is a picture of the president and founder of WorldCom, Bernard Ebers. He didn't start out, uh, but, but he didn't just found WorldCom right away. It grew. It, it grew from a smaller business into a larger one. But he was born August 27, 1941, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He went to college in Canada, then eventually received a basketball scholarship to an American college in Mississippi. And eventually went on to become a basketball coach, a milkman, many other different jobs that were big at that time in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s. So he did that for a while, pretty much, you know, made up his mind he was going to live in the U.S. and did a variety of different jobs. Well, then he decided he wanted to own his own business. So with his proceeds from being a high school basketball coach, he bought many different type of businesses, but became most popular for buying a, a couple very small motels. Now, not hotels, but motels. You know, the type that you see off the interstate, they have the rooms outside that are kind of small. He bought a couple of those. And he got a reputation for hammering down on things. Like, he was a believer that if you controlled your costs when doing, a, when doing business, that the profits would take care of themselves. So he did things like he was his own maintenance man. He worked, you know, many of the shifts at the front desk. He cleaned the rooms. He was his own housekeeping service. Uh, he 
would make someone use a pencil till it was absolutely gone before he would order new ones. So he became had a kind of a reputation as kind of a skinflint. He hired as few people as possible and did the majority of the work himself. And as a result, his hotels were pretty profitable. And then eventually he decided, after he sold those, he wanted to branch out and do something different. So he met with a group of entrepreneurs and businessmen in the small town of Jackson, Mississippi, 1983, at a small diner. And they were wanting to get into the long-distance resale game. Now, what, what that meant, in this is in the 80s, and in the 80s, there were some big players. There was uh, there had been Ma Bell, which was broken up by the government as being a monopoly, but that had been splintered off into many other companies. You had MCI, you had AT&T, you had Sprint, you had a lot of little regional companies that were basically reselling long-distance service. I mean, long-distance is what it is. That's when... Everybody had house phones, and when you made a call, especially if it was out of your area, you paid so much per minute for that call. It's not like today with a cell phone where pretty much any, I can call Europe, and it's pretty much free on this. Well, no more than what I pay, but then if you dialed to the next city, you had to pay so much per minute to make that call. So a lot of people were reselling long distance. They would buy a bulk of long-distance service and they would resell it to customers so they wanted to get in on that they didn't they figured there wasn't enough competition for MCI Sprint AT&T so they wanted to get in on that themselves so these businessmen met and they came up with their own idea for a long-distance reseller and they called it LDDS which stands for long-distance discount service and that was basically WorldCom for the first 12 years of its of its existence. Uh, they all knew Bernie had a reputation for being able to keep a company profitable, i.e. his motels. So he was made CEO, president of LDDS, which was a private company for a long time. And he ran it the same way as he ran his motels. He hired as few people as possible. He did as much of it as himself as he could. He kept the rates at the absolute highest price that people would pay. And literally, there were people that in LDDS's early years that would say they couldn't get a new ink pen unless they returned the old one completely devoid of ink to Bernard or his office manager. And then they could get a new one. I mean, he absolutely controlled costs to the penny and at LDDS started acquiring other small regional long-distance resellers and they started growing and buying an ever-expanding book of business they started growing started growing started growing and in the early 90s they established themselves as a pretty large employer in the Jackson Clinton Mississippi area they had a huge campus um, but again Bernard had never ran a very large company you know everything that he had done and ran on his keep costs minimal mindset were very small businesses by all accounts so as they started to grow he didn't take into consideration that the way you have to put money into businesses to make them work well so they were acquiring all these different long distance companies that had different lines providers you know when you had long distance you had telephone lines that had to be maintained so he was acquiring all these long-distance sellers that didn't necessarily 
save people money. They were basically just buying services from the big three, MCI, ATT, and Sprint, and reselling them. Well, they didn't take into consideration that their lines weren't always compatible, that they were competing with each other, like you had reps calling one person offering them MCI at a discount rate, but they already had a discounted rate from another subsidiary for, with AT&T for a better rate. So they were they were starting to compete on each other because he didn't take the time to put the money into developing a common infrastructure. So you had basically all these little, still all these little competing regional reseller companies competing against each other, calling each other's books of businesses under the same umbrella of LDDS. So I remember as a kid getting those calls. Are you satisfied with your long distance service? If you switch to MCI, you'll get blah, blah, blah. So those were, those were what those, the, those, these companies did. And he didn't take the consideration that their billing systems didn't always communicate with each other. The books were off. People's bills got messed up. So it was just a big old mess. But Bernard, his philosophy was he would throw that off on other people and said, you know, fix it, fix it, but would never give them any money to fix it. And at the same time, would clamp down on costs. In 1995, they became WorldCom when they merged with one of the big boys, MCI. And MCI at the time was called MCI WorldCom. And when they merged, they dropped the MCI, they dropped the LDDS, and they simply were monikered WorldCom, and they built this sprawling brand new campus in Clinton, Mississippi. They also had a regional headquarters in Dallas, Texas, and they were basically one of now one of the big three. You had AT&T, you had Sprint, and now you had WorldCom. So people were just amazed because some of his former investors that had originally invested in the OLDDS were just amazed when he took it. They figured MCI would take over LDDS, not the other way around, but somehow. He managed to absorb it, and that became his philosophy. Once he got a taste of the good life from taking over MCI and becoming a public company, Bernard Evers went on a rampage of continuing to swallow up other small regional resellers to make himself as big as he could be. Basically, it was a too-big-to-fail mentality. And all the time, he was a very hands-on CEO where he knew everyone's name that worked at the main campus. He knew all the vendors. And he still managed under the principle of if you control costs, profits will come. He didn't put any money or any really any thought into the kind of things they were now selling because they had gotten into the game of selling Internet now because Internet was in its infancy in the early 90s. He, in the early and mid-90s, they had gotten into selling the Internet, and he understood absolutely nothing about it. It was an entirely different type of line from telephone lines. So he didn't really understand it, and again, you had the problem with their them competing against each other with all these little regional sellers, and also the fact that their billing system still didn't really talk to each other, so people were getting messed up on their business, and he also was such a skin flint around the corporate headquarters that people became kind of wary of him. He actually decided at one point to take out the free coffee pots. You know, they just had coffee pots with, you know, plastic cups and stuff in all their break rooms. He decided that he was spending too much on coffee after he went in there and counted the coffee filters. So he decided, okay, we're just going to make paper, paper coffee. So he took the coffee pots and all that out and replaced them with those pay 
coffee machines. You know, the ones where you put in a dime or a quarter and it drops a cup and fills you up with coffee. He took all the free coffee pots out and put that in. He removed all the free snacks and things like that and replaced it with vending machines. He also told his managers that they could not order pizza for their team because you had these people that were managing these huge call centers of people trying to sell long-distance service to people at night and they would feed them pizza as a motivation. Well, no more of that unless you get it approved by Bernie. Also, a policy that if you got up and went outside for a smoke break or to the break room or to get coffee, you had to turn the lights out in your office. I mean, just outlandish stuff to save a dime. But all this time, not really putting money into improving the infrastructure and making the infrastructure jive. So there was a lot of internal problems there. And they went off the old, there's an, I'm sure you've heard the old moniker about the internet, the internet uh, presence doubles, the amount of people on the internet double every day. No one really knows where that came from. Uh, it was just something that an accountant said in a meeting somewhere that he thought the internet was going to double daily. Well, Bernie took that and ran, and so he became very aggressive buying up these small internet providers and not really knowing anything about the internet. He also wouldn't really communicate with email. He said you had to call him on the phone or walk down and talk with him. He was running basically what was cutting edge technology at the time, but was kind of stuck in the old days. So it was just kind of, their profit potential was capped. And that's where the problem started. Let's move on. Well, keep thinking in that mindset after 1995, after the WorldCom merger, WorldCom MCI merger. And their profit potential is pretty well capped because you have a CEO living in the dark ages. It's more concerned about people ordering pizza than actually putting money into the infrastructure. A lot of his old timers that had been with him since LDDS started quitting or resigning or retiring. So he was hiring new people that didn't really see things the same, same way. So there was a lot of internal conflict. His uh, chief technology officer decided to use uh, some of the technology they were selling, which was kind of like a competitor. They had acquired this company that sold office, um, office and presentation software. So he decided he was going to use some of that stuff in a presentation and Bernard chastising him for trying to look too smart. So you can see the great divide there. But uh, all these people didn't really agree with Bernie's philosophy, and there was a lot of infighting. So as a result, their growth kind of started to slow down, and their profits started to drop. And so since they were a public company, they were required every year to release an income statement and profit and loss for Wall Street. And at that time, its stock, like Enron's, was going up, 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 up. So there was a, they were all the big brass at the company and some people at the mid-level were making all their money off bonuses and stock options. So there was a great lot of interest in keeping that rising. So it came to a point in 1999 when there were a lot of cracks starting to form and there was more pressure than ever coming down the pipeline to meet the street. And what that means is to either meet or exceed the Wall Street predictions for what your earnings should be for that year. So in 1999, there are two big things happened. One, the accounting scandal started, we think. It could have been going on a lot further back than that, but we think that's when the accounting scandal started. And also, 
they attempted, WorldCom attempted to merge with Sprint in 1999, but it was poo-pooed by both the United States and the United Kingdom for fear of creating too big a monopoly. I mean, you got to remember, they had just gotten rid of the Mall Bell monopoly in the 1960s and 70s, so they weren't prepared to allow another big monopoly to form after they'd already broken down one. So that was poo-pooed. Of course, that caused their earnings to drop a little bit, but not, not too much. But within the system, there was a lot of fear that they weren't going to meet even those reduced earnings. So it came down from CEO Scott Sullivan, who's not CEO, he's CFO. My bad, That's I should have put Bernie Eppers there, but uh, Bernie Eppers was still the CEO at this time. But it came down the pipeline from Scott Sullivan, the CFO, that they had to meet the street's expectations at any, at any cost. So you had the comptroller, David Myers, who brought in the, their actual P&L, an earnings statement, into Scott Sullivan's office, and they missed the street by a wide margin. Well, Scott Sullivan threw it back at David Myers and said, you need to fix this. We've made a mistake. This is not our actual earnings. Go back and look at it. So David Myers, the comptroller, now in a company there's a CFO under him as the comptroller who kind of is over all the accountants, and then you have accountants going on, on down. So he went back to his team, which consisted of the head of accounting, Betty Yates, uh, staff accountant, Betty Vincent, and they were he was a, a senior accountant. We need to fix this. They reran the numbers and came up with pretty much the same thing. This was first quarter, 1999. Went back to Scott Sullivan. He said, look, we need to fix this. We need to reduce our expenses. We have a lot of money in reserve from all of our acquisitions. Use that if you had to have to. So for the first year, 1999 to 2000, they started rapidly paying off debt with the cash reserves. But the thing of it is, you had all these billions of dollars of cash reserves, and they started like, paying off all these expenses to reduce, you know, the right side of the left side of the uh, balance sheet. And, but they didn't reduce what was in the reserves. They just sort of used that to hide it, hide the expenses, but didn't show the fact that the cash reserves were now starting to dwindle, 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 dwindle. But you got to remember that paying off debt's not a bad strategy, but for a publicly traded company who has to be completely transparent and visible in everything that they do, if you do that, you have to let your investors know that. But what they did, instead of just, okay, we paid off a bunch of debt, we're going to tell you about it now, they started letting it trickle in. They would pay off debt and then only release part of it and then release the part of it the next quarter. So it wasn't really a scam at that point. It was just aggressive accounting. And that kept them afloat for about a year. But then after that, those cash reserves had dwindled down to the point they couldn't spend anymore because as a publicly traded company, you are required to keep a certain amount of cash on hand. So they were stuck. They had to figure out another way. So it came down from Scott Sullivan to David Myers. We need to start capitalizing all of our expenses. We can't eliminate them with the cash reserves anymore. So we need to eliminate them by basically hiding them as capital acquisitions or capital expenditures. Now, what that means is you're buying, okay, yes, this is debt, but you're buying a asset. So even though you have more debt here, you have another asset here. 
So it kind of counterbalances everything. And that's what they did. They were taking expenses that were basically expenses that could never be recouped and writing them up as if they were buying an asset. Now think about things like internet cable, uh, phone, uh, phone lines, infrastructure stuff that's basically a full-on loss. I mean, you need it to generate a profit, but it's not worth anything. It's like the gas you put in your car. That car is an asset to a certain point until it's, you know, its cost exceeds, until its cost drops, until its worth drops below what you paid for it. It's an asset, but the gas you put into it is an absolute loss. You can't really, the gas doesn't do anything but get you from point A to point B. It's not an asset. It's just an expense that's required to operate the car. Well, that's what they were doing. They were taking the expenses that were just things that you had to buy to operate a phone and tele, a, a telecommunications company and writing them up as if there was a, an asset to, to back that up. So that's how they started hiding the, all the expenses and losses at that point. Now, when that came down from Scott Sullivan, David Myers, who I will show you some clips from an interview with him after this, said he was very uncomfortable with it. He took it to Betty Yates and Betty Vincent, and they were very uncomfortable with it. He said that Betty, you could always tell when she was upset that she would get very quiet and her neck would turn a bright shade of red. Well, that's what was happening through this entire conversation. She got up and said that she was going to resign. She could not be a part of this. Well, that got back to Scott Sullivan, and he was upset. He's like, look, we need everybody to be on board or this isn't going to work. Basically, he wanted to keep everybody in the fold, make everybody a part of it so no one would turn witness on them. No one would leak it. So he called the entire accounting department into his office and basically guilt-tripped them about how long they had been with the company and how, yes, they were going to come out a little scarred, but at least the company would still be there. So you really need to do this. So Betty said she didn't know how long she could hang in there, but she would stay. So that's what they did. They started capitalizing uh, expenses as capital expenditures. They were, instead of saying you were buying phone line to run this sector of your long distance service or your internet service, you were buying something that was an asset. So keep that in mind. And that worked for a while. But again, cracks started to form, especially when an employee in their regional office in Dallas read the story of what was going on at Enron and got really nervous. This was in 2001-2002. Got really nervous about the fact that he knew there were some shenanigans going on and he didn't report it. So he actually picked up the phone and called their internal auditor, Cynthia Cooper, and said, there's some accounting abnormalities coming out of Jackson. Perhaps you need to look at that. So that's what just what she did. She flew from Dallas to Jackson with her team and she conducted a thorough audit. She walked into, after it was over, she walked into Scott Sullivan's office, threw her report down and said, I need to know where the assets that go along with these purchases are kept and what they are. And at that point, Scott Sullivan knew the whole thing had come unraveled and he admitted there is nothing. Though That was stuff that's all but used up at this point. Well, Cynthia did her civic duty and she picked up the she picked up the phone and she called the SEC because she knew that a lot of this stuff had uh, affected 
Wall Street's predictions and therefore manipulated stock prices, so it was her duty to call the SEC. The SEC launched a formal investigation, and uh, the whole scam came unraveled, and as a result, they ended up filing bankruptcy in 2002. At that time, it even surpassed Enron as the world, as the country's largest corporate bankruptcy, only later to be surpassed by Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual uh, during the financial crisis of 2006-2008. So, uh, yeah, and all the time, when she was, when Cynthia was interviewing all the employees, they all pointed the finger at controller David Myers and Scott Sullivan, the CFO, who basically, as I said, had guilt-tripped them into going along with this, just saying that this wasn't really fraud, this was just fixing errors they had made in their bookkeeping to keep the company profitable. Well, that didn't didn't exactly fly, and as the SEC investigation came on, charges were filed against just about everybody within the accounting and finance department of the company, including Betty Vincent, who I do kind of feel sorry for because she was a single mom, had to support her family, but still, I think she should have went with your gut instinct. Now, as you can see, our old buddy Arthur Anderson down here was their external auditor, and they launched an investigation into why none of this had been caught and just like at Enron, Arthur Anderson had an office there at WorldCom and just gotten very comfortable, were more concerned with drawing their million dollar a year fees than actually uh, catching errors and you just piled more crap on the top of what happened to Arthur Anderson who eventually had their accounting license revoked and went out of business. So at that time, Best rule of thumb, if Arthur Anderson audits anything, don't do business with that company. There you go. And the result of all this, Bernie Eppers contended the entire time that he did not know anything about the accounting scandal. That was purely something concocted by Scott Sullivan and David Myers and their department. He knew nothing about it, but unfortunately, federal judge did not buy that, especially with all the accounts of the meetings that he had with Sullivan and Myers from them, as well as just the overall theme of when they deposed former employees about how hands-on he was and how everything went through him, there was no way he couldn't have known. And as a result, all the others that were indicted took plea deals and served less than five, five years or less in prison. Betty Vincent served a year. Uh, David Myers served five years. I believe Scott Sullivan served uh, around five years. Ebers actually fought it in court, lost, ended up now serving 25 years in federal prison in Texas, as well as having to pay $2.25 billion in restitution to the investors. And um, he had to release all of his other assets to government control so they could be liquidated to pay part of that debt. And he owned a lot of stuff. One of the largest ranches in Canada. He owned a large timber ranch. He owned, owned a yacht building company. He owned um, all kinds of different things. Like I said, he he grew up, he was always kind of an entrepreneurial uh, mindset. So he felt that having a lot of streams of income was the best way to go. And it also came out in the trial that he knew what, what was really the game changer that basically let them know, yes, he knew he knew about it. He went to the board at one point in 2001 and told them he was about to sell all his WorldCom stock. 
because he knew the price was about to drop. So he was about to drop all his WorldCom Scott. Well, the board knew that that would be the final nail in the coffin with the investigation going on. So they actually floated him like a $1 billion loan to cover all his expenses so that he would not sell his stock to keep up his personal expenses. When that came out at trial, it was all over for him, and they did end up sentencing him to 25 years in prison. Uh, the Chapter 11 bankruptcy that WorldCom went through in 2002 was finally discharged in 2004, which resulted in the remaining parts of the company, mainly the MCI parts, the only part that was ran on the up and up, was actually acquired by Verizon and is now part of Verizon. All of their infrastructure became part of Verizon. So that's where they are today. That's what happened with WorldCom. And I'm going to end on a, a few little clips from a interview with David Myers um, about his part in the scandal. And I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Again, like, comment, share, subscribe. I really enjoy doing these for you guys, uh, as well as all my other videos. I'll be back soon with another one. Remember, ketosis, y'all. Keto comic. Out. Um, the accounting manager that reported to me, and I had been talking all this time, and we both knew that while we had at one point in time, substantial reserves through acquisitions, we had bled through those very quickly. And the conversation that, that we had was, we can't keep doing this because there's no more liabilities to, you know, to release. So we're at the point now where if you release any liabilities, you're actually releasing liabilities to someone that you actually owe. It was the senior manager um, that reported to me. He says, we can't keep taking items off the right side of the balance sheet. There's nothing there to take off. If you're gonna, if you're gonna continue doing what you're doing, you're gonna have to go to the, to the asset side. You're gonna actu actually have to capitalize something as opposed to expensing it. I don't think at that point in time, anybody thought that was a real way to do it, but from a, from a mechanical perspective, that was, the, that was the next thing to do. Again, I don't think, I, I know from my perspective, I didn't think we were gonna do that. The senior manager